Thanks, dads. What a great passage today that actually is going to relate very much to dads. And I encourage you to have your Bibles in hand. There's an outline that's available for you as well to follow along. And I think you'll find it helpful as we go through this transition time. And, uh, and so we're going to have the uh, things. Uh, all right. Let me read the text that's for us here in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to actually begin in chapter 3 because it leads us into chapter 4. The book of Galatians, the primary text that we've been looking at over these uh, last few weeks. And it's all about our Father's love for us. And it's all about a country that we today call Turkey. And so Paul wrote to these people, many of them brand new believers, sort of learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor freeman, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now I say, as long as the heir heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also, we, while we were children, were led, were held in bondage under the the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that he might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And of a son, then an heir through God. And so the theme fits nicely for us on Father's Day as we look at God our Father who loves us dearly. Now if you're a student of God's Word and you love to study God's Word and you have insights about God's Word, one thing that is important for us to understand is that when Paul wrote this text, as when any of the authors of the Bible wrote their text, there was a primary application. There was a primary group that he was writing to, a culture that he's addressing. We'll see some of that highlighted as we go through this text. But also, there is a secondary application. There are ways that it goes beyond sort of the primary thing God was saying because there are secondary ways that we can apply this text to our lives. I'll show you what I mean as we go through it, but I wanted to set that up. So the first thing that we learn about our Father is that he loves to remove He wants to remove, he seeks to remove overbearing expectations so that we can grow into maturity. He doesn't want us to be overcome with these stress factors. Let me show you. So in the primary application and then lead you to the secondary application. It's interesting what Paul writes. He says, now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Just stopping there. There's something going on in the culture of that time. In that time, children were reared by, as Paul calls them, guardians and managers. They were often slaves that these parents had. So they put their slaves in charge of rearing their children probably till they're about age 14. And these slaves had full control. It was high control, low freedom for children in those days. Wherever the children would go, the guardians were with them. Whatever the children wanted to do, the guardians had to give them permission. 
So it was high control. So Paul's playing off of that, spiritually speaking. He says, look, as you, as children grew up, you grew up like a slave. He calls them slaves. They were like slaves, these kids. They had no freedom. And so just like a slave has a master over them, these kids had masters over them. They were slaves and guardians. Then Paul goes on to say the second sentence, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, the philosophical, cultural, humanistic thinking of the world in that day. They were captured under that. So Paul is playing off of that in a spiritual way. But one of the things that would happen when a child became 14 is they were given a toga. And there was a ceremony that went on in the toga virilis. In the ancient Rome, the youth at age 14 was given this coat that would wrap around them to show that you are now my son. All the inheritance that is mine, I pass on to you. So Paul is playing off of that. In fact, that's why I read Galatians 3. He says you're being clothed in Christ. The imagery of the child in those days is being clothed with this toga to show that I have all the rights as a child. Paul says spiritually that's what God does too. He clothes us with Christ so that we have all the rights of the God in heaven that we worship, the Father. So Paul is playing off. That's that primary work that's going on. But spiritually there is a freedom that God wants to give to us as well. So two points. God wants us as a father to have a mature relationship that is free from the slave-like control. He doesn't want to dominate over us, so we're always trying to earn that approval from God. It's a mature relationship. We're free from earning approval by the laws. We don't have guardians and slaves that we always have to somehow please in order to get our way. We have a God that loves us dearly, that freely wants to give us all good things. I know as I grew up as a kid... Uh, about sixth grade, I realized I had to start wearing eyeglasses. And in those days, the dark ages, eyeglasses were not a cool thing. I know that a lot of people even wear eyeglasses today. They don't even have glass in there. It's just unfathomable for me. But as a kid, I hated the fact that my eyes weren't good enough and I had to wear glasses because I thought I was going to really look like the nerd who was on the outs. I wasn't part of the cool gang. I never have been, for that matter. And... So I got eyeglasses, and it was amazing. I could read the chalkboard. But I hated to wear glasses in the classroom. So I knew that my mother would always ask me, did you, David, did you wear your glasses today? And I wanted to say yes. I'm not going to lie. So in those days, you had desks that had a top that would go up, and you put all your books inside. So what I would do is take my glasses out, stick my head inside the desk, put the glasses on, take them off, and then close it. So when my mother asked, did you wear your glasses today, I technically could uh, say, yes, I wore my glasses today. So I did that many, many days. Well, where it really caught up with me is I played Little League. And so I played in that, remember that season, about sixth grade, I played in the outfield. I was a center fielder. And uh, I couldn't see a thing out there. Center fielder, we couldn't see anything. So I heard one, I remember distinctly this one time, where I heard the ball smack. It sounded like a good, hard hit. And the ball was flying in the air, and I had no idea where the ball was. And the ball landed right one foot in front of my feet. If I stood two feet further, it would have hit me in my head. And when that ball dropped, I picked it up, and I threw it in. I felt so ashamed. But when the ball landed at my feet, what I remember even more importantly than missing the ball is this. My dad was in the little stands that they're there for the Little League games. And when I missed that ball, didn't even make a motion to catch it because I couldn't see it. My dad yelled out, David! 
in sort of a disapproving way. I still, you know, here I am at my ripe old age. I can still remember hearing his voice that goes back many years because I never wanted to disappoint my dad. I wanted to earn his approval. I was living under this kind of a system in the church as well. as There was always a lot of kind of legalistic things. You do things to earn approval. Well, the father comes along and says, look, Dave, that's not who I am. Don't put that on me. You're not my slave. You're my son. And I want to give you that freedom to grow up without unrealistic expectations. One of the things I'm going to do today is I'm going to co-teach this message. My dad and I are going to teach this message together. So brace yourselves. My dad's in heaven, so it's kind of a miracle. So watch this. One of the things my dad taught me is this. We had citrus trees growing up in Phoenix, Arizona. My dad used this illustration, so I'll use it for you today. Our Father in heaven wants us to grow up well. Well, I got three grapefruit in my hands. I got the baby grapefruit, green, never had a chance to grow up because I picked it prematurely. But here it is. Someday, that grapefruit needs to grow into this grapefruit. So it's ripe, it's full, it's lush, juicy, ready to be eaten. So what God wants to do is he wants to take us from here to here. The challenge is that sometimes we become like this one, a rotted out, stale, putrid, filled with little fireflies or little flies inside of it that never had its day of prime living. The challenge for us is that God says, I want to take you from this to this, but as dads, as a father in heaven loves us, he never wants us to grow stagnant, a little bug just flew out of it. <laughs> he never wants us to become rotted out because there is this unfair, unrealistic expectation that sort of quenches the spirit, that becomes controlling and dominating and lacks approval, where there's conditional love, where there's an overwhelming sense of do what's right and not enough of be loving, compassionate, and merciful. So sometimes, sometimes we end up like this because not everything there in the home allowed us to grow to full maturity. And God wants us to grow to full maturity. So the Apostle Paul says, I want you to understand that I've given to you this heavenly father who wants to take away the unrealistic expectations in those days. It was the structures of the law. It was all these, these Old Testament commandments they had to somehow live up to. In the Grecian world, it was all the, the philosophical uh, meanderings of humanistic thinking that was sort of clamping down the spirit of people. They're, they're growing up like slaves, not like children that are freely loved and embraced. So the Father in heaven is saying, look, I want to take away all of that so you can become the mature person I've designed you to be. And I won't put on you unrealistic expectations. Then secondly, our Father sovereignly works to bring us into a new relationship so that we can trust him. 
God is working in mighty ways and amazing, miraculous ways. That's what Paul talks about in this next verse, these three verses. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit into his, of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is a major theme of Scripture. That God says, I'm sovereignly working, and, I, and this way the way he puts this, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure I fully understand what Paul is saying. In the fullness of the time, it came, and God sent his son. There was something happening at that point of history that God said, today, son, I'm going to send you to become a child of the Virgin Mary so that you can come into this world, redeem this world, adopt this world, and then I'll give you my spirit to seal you in this new relationship. It may be of the fullness of time. Some of the speculation is that uh, Israel is back in the land. Roman power is in place. The Roman pacts, this time of peace, there are road systems, there's language systems that allows for this uh, transfer of, uh, of uh, communities and individuals and truth. So in the fullness of that time, God says, now the time for my son to come, and my son comes, and that son comes and does this miraculous thing. It's a sovereign control of divinely working in ways that we couldn't see. What the Father wants us to understand is that he controls everything. He has us in his hands. He's doing a mighty work. And there are moments when we don't see it, we don't get it, but it doesn't mean that he's not doing it. And the things that he sent to us in the Son, Jesus Christ, sort of a theological backdrop of what he's giving to us, the big picture, the macro picture, is that Jesus, Son of God, fully God, Jesus, born of a woman, fully man, Jesus, as he says, he's under the law, he is qualified. That's the big picture. That's the primary application. That's the macro view of God, that I've done everything in the sovereignty of the history of this world that my son would come and he would redeem and adopt you into his family. That's the big picture. Primary application. Secondary application. Let me move into that. As I think about that, there is a secondary way that we who are fathers, and frankly all of us, can show that God is still in charge, that he is the mighty one, that my life can be a display of his power working through me. And let me illustrate with my dad. These are three images of my dad. The first one you see on the left there is my dad in the 1960s. He grew this Ernest Hemingway-sized beard. And in those days, if you had a beard like that, everybody was sure you were probably doing LSD. So that was, I'm just telling you, back in those days, it was a different world. Um, so my dad, when he walked out on the platform, I was in the, congr- in the congregation, I remember, when he walked out for the first time with his big old beard, people were just gasped. They couldn't believe that Dr. Mitchell would grow a beard like this. It's, it's like so, so hippie-like, you know. That was the thinking back in those days. Well, my dad grew that beard, but the thing I sh- wanted to sh- show you on that picture is he had red hair. It wasn't quite as red as it was when he was earlier on in life, but he, my dad hated his red hair. How many of you have something about you that you hate, that you wish God had done it differently? I guess I alone have those things. So that was my dad. God, why did you give me that red hair? That was his thinking. Until the day came that he was at Dallas Theological Seminary back in the mid-1940s. 
And uh, he was wondering what he's going to do after he graduated and where he would go. And Dr. J. Vernon McGee came on the campus back in those days. And if you know anything about church history, Dr. J. Vernon McGee was kind of the big man back in that era. Church of the Open Door, downtown Los Angeles, was kind of the big deal church in those days. And so Dr. McGee came to Dallas Seminary to look for an assistant pastor. And he asked Dr. Chafer, who was the president of Dallas Seminary at those days, is Dr. Chafer, do you know of anybody that you could recommend to become the assistant pastor for me at Church of the Open Door? And, and he was on the radio. I mean, he was a big, he was the Rick Warren, the Andy Stanley of the day. He was like the big deal guy. And so Dr. Chafer says, well, there is one guy I've kind of noticed. It's this guy with really bright red hair. Why don't you start with him? So Dr. McGee interviewed my dad, gave him the job. 1951, moved to Los Angeles with my mother and me and Diane, my sister, and became his assistant pastor from 1951 to 1955. And as a result of that, Bethany Bible Church, where I grew up, my dad pastored in Phoenix, Arizona, called Dr. McGee and said, do you have anybody that you could recommend to be a pastor to us? In fact, would you, Dr. McGee, like to become our pastor? And Dr. McGee said, well, there are three reasons why I'll never be a pastor in Phoenix. I said, what's that? June, July, and August. I'll never go. That's what he said. But I have an assistant here that maybe you would be interested in. So they recommended my dad, Dr. John Mitchell, and he became uh, Bethany Bible Church's first pastor for almost 30 years, served there. And I grew up there, and it has become part of my life. God used that in my life. And I think about that. If you go all the way back to those seminary days in the 1940s, my dad hated his red hair, But that was the start of God pushing the dominoes, which eventually affected even me to this day. And that's the beauty of what God loves to do. Now, not only that, but my dad, here's where you're going to hear from him. I have a little audio tape of my dad. As he's reflecting back upon how God had worked in his life, and I just, I feel a little self-indulgent with this, so bear with me. I've never done this before after 40 years of preaching 40 sermons from Father's Day. But listen to the story that he tells earlier in his life, how God sovereignly controlled things. At one point he couldn't see it, but at the end of the day, 25 years later, he realized, oh, God, you were in charge. Take a listen. And when I finished seminary, uh, I was invited by the First Presbyterian Church of Cleburne, Texas, a little town, 10,000 people just outside of Dallas, 50 miles outside of Dallas. And they invited me to come and be their pastor. But I was struggling. How does a young fellow who's a bachelor, single and all of that, go into a situation uh, with, well, you know what would be found in the congregation? Girls from all the community would be coming to catch hold of this very eligible young bachelor who just come to a 10,000 population. He thought of a lot of himself in those days. And so I didn't know what, whether I should go or not. I thought maybe it would be better for me to go to an assistant pastor someplace. And Dallas has a day of prayer, just like you have, will have a day of prayer in a few weeks. And I went to that day of prayer, and it was November the 17th. And we were encouraging that day of prayer to uh, make some decisions for prayer subjects. And so I prayed for wisdom as to whether I should accept this call of this church in Cleveland, And then the scripture was read from the pulpit in the chapel, 
And this was what was read in Exodus 33, verse 12. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. And I have that underscored in this Bible that I had in my hands at that time. You have told me to bring up this people. You have called me to this church in Cleaver, but you have not told me whom you will send with me as your life companion. I said, that's what I want to know, Lord. Who will you send with me? And then in the afternoon, I had my eyes glanced down further in that passage, and then saw this verse. And he said, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. So I accepted that as coming from the Lord that he wanted me to go, that his presence would go with me, not to worry whether I should have a wife at that stage or not. And so I made a notation in my Bible here, on November 17th, Day of Prayer. When we were celebrating our 25th anniversary over here at the church, and the church people had an occasion for it, I pulled out this old Bible and came across this, which was referring to the day when I prayed for a wife. Who would have been? And for the first time, after 25 years, I discovered for the first time that November 17th, the day I prayed about a wife, two years later, it became our wedding day. That's the day we were married. I, I had no idea that that was so, but God providentially led me to pray on that particular day. And then when we set the wedding date, we had no idea that this was true. In fact, didn't know until we were celebrating our 25th anniversary. That was the day God answered She's been a wonderful wife. That's for sure. It's my mother. Isn't that great? This is that Bible that he's talking about. It says on the front cover, from his mother and his dad to John, 1936, they gave him this Bible. And inside of it, Exodus chapter 33, the verses that he's talking about are underlined in pink. To the right little column, it says, 11, 17, 44, day of prayer the day he prayed for a wife, and God says, I'll be with you, okay. So for two years, he didn't know what God was gonna do, but two years later, unbeknownst to him, he didn't recall at all, but they set their wedding date on November the 17th, and it was a Monday night, a Monday night, because he was busy preaching on Sunday, so they didn't wanna do anything on Sunday, so church comes first. <laughs> I grew up with that. On Monday night, they got married. So 25 years later, he recognized, oh, God was in charge of that. How beautiful it is for me as a son, and this so there's a self-indulgent to think, I've got a dad that was trusting the control of God, and how beautiful it will be. And if you don't have a dad that was working in that realm of faith in Christ and faith in God's sovereign control, I want to encourage us, no matter what our background is, no matter what our fathers that we grew up with are, that we can begin that journey of showing others the sovereign work in our lives. When we don't get what God is doing, when we don't understand what God is doing, we still walk by faith that we have a heavenly Father that loves us, that redeemed us, that adopted us as his children, and that my life can be a life of faith and that I can pass that faith of God's sovereign control to my children, to my friends, to my coworkers, my classmates that I am part of that journey of making known God's sovereign work. 
Because God loves to adopt us. He wants to adopt us, to give us his spirit so we can call him daddy. Make it a very personal journey where we call upon him. It's a transfer of this inheritance that comes to us because God says, I want to take care of you. I want you to see a little video clip that we made just a couple of days ago with Rick Larsh. He's a superior court judge, goes here to Calvary Church. He works in the family court. I want you to hear some of his insights about this whole concept of adoption. Kind of fills in the blank of some of our hearts and minds when you think about who God is, as our adoptive father as well. So take a look and listen. Hi, Calvary family. I'm so glad to introduce to you uh, Rick Larsh right here, a member here at Calvary Church, and he serves as a judge in the Orange County area. And tell us what your role is as a judge. I'm a Superior Court judge in the family court uh, area of the law for the last five years. Before that, for 15 years, I was in the criminal department, and I handled... Uh, all sorts of criminal cases, a lot that we saw in the news. After 15 years, I thought I'd make a change to a difficult area uh, in the law, and that's family law. Mm -hmm. Well, we're thankful that we have a good Christian man in family law because that's an area that we care about deeply here at Calvary Church. And as we go through this book of Galatians that we've been studying here, we're right in that midpoint of Galatians 4, and uh, Paul is now introducing this concept that we're going to be adopted as his children. And I know that you've been involved with that and you have some background in that area of adoption. And maybe give us a little bit of insight as to what is adoption look like from your perspective and helping to rescue children but also place them in beautiful homes as well. Well, one of the things I can tell you is that the adoption court is the happiest place on earth. We might have thought it was Disneyland, but yeah. it's, it really is the adoption Imagine, court. Yeah. When you come into the court, you're in a controversy typically. In adoption court, there's joy, there's excitement, there's hope for a new future of the families that are coming through the court. Mm-hmm. And it's really a pleasure to have that opportunity as a judge to sit through that experience and to preside over cases where you're giving over to a family a child to nurture, to raise up, and care for. Mm-hmm. And when they're adopted, they claim all the legal rights as a biological child. Is that correct? That's correct. When they come in, there's a there's actually an investigation that's done to make sure that they're appropriate, that they can nurture the child, that they can care for the child. And they have to go through that investigation, pass, and then they have to come to court and swear under oath that they will abide by the obligations of a parent to take care and raise that child. Once that's done, we declare that child to be their child. And that child has all the rights of inheritance. That child is as a natural born child. Mm, That's a beautiful concept because that's what Paul is teaching us here in this passage. We have all the rights of a child of God, the inheritance of heaven and all the blessings of this world today. Do you know of a situation that you could share with us about uh, how the adoption process has been just a real blessing to a family? Probably for me, the most uh, incredible story of adoption came through my experience of meeting Gianna Jensen here at Calvary Church. She came and spoke and she sang. She was a young lady whose mother had gone in for an abortion and divinely, miraculously, the abortion did not uh, work and her life was saved. Mm. And as a result, uh, she was put into foster care, adopted at four, and now is an incredible, beautiful young lady that is fighting for uh, the lives of others. She has a hope and a future, and I can't think of a circumstance where you would feel more worthless, more at loss. And uh, 
I think that's the best example I can think of. But we have that every day where families are just in horrible situations and they give up their child because there is no hope in that home. And we have families that are willing, six a week on average, really? are willing to step up and say, we'll take this child and we'll raise the child well. Well, my prayer is that we as a church would be that kind of a home when people are lost and sort of not sure about where their life is going, that we'd be a family to them, much as God wants us to be his family as well. So thank you for being part of this and helping us in our governmental system, but also being part of the family called Calvary Church, that we can welcome people in, and sometimes they've lost their way. We want to give all the blessings we can to them as well. Fantastic. It's yeah. One of the things, Dave, that I thought when you asked about this was what happens. The child is the recipient but the joy that I really see is in the parents. Mm. And it reminded me of my faith, the oh. joy of the father with the prodigal son oh, when good. he comes home. And I see that every week in our adoption court. Mm -hmm. And it's to have that opportunity, because we're all adopted, Romans 8.15 tells us. Yeah. And uh, as a result, uh, to come to Calvary and to be part of one family mm -hmm. is just a blessing. Yeah. Do you think of the joy of our Father in heaven? We don't realize all the blessings we get, but the right. joy of the Father, that he sees that. And so it is with the families you deal with as well. So thanks, Rick, helping us understand this a little bit better. You're more than welcome. Thank okay. you, Dave. Thanks for leading us. See, I love that, that thinking there. I, one of the things that my takeaway is, I don't think of the Father joyfully, joyfully going forward and realize that, in my case, Dave Mitchell became adopted into his family. I look back when my kids were born, what a joy it is for a father to have children like this. And I think, God, that's, that's how you feel about me. I'm not a slave. I'm not burdened down. I'm not in your way. I have become your son. And that gives you great joy so that we can live out this life as an adopted child of God co-heirs with Jesus Christ. It's a big change in an attitude and outlook that this community we call Calvary Church is like that joyful courtroom where people are coming to be adopted and to grow with new parents, a perfect father who loves us dearly. That's what Paul is talking about as these kids that grew up with slaves who are guardians are now transferred into sonship of great joy of the Father in heaven. Because the Father loves to give us these blessings. He wants to give us these blessings. Paul moves into the future. So he says, look, therefore, let me repeat, this meant so much more to them maybe to, than to us. But it says you're no longer a slave. You don't have guardians who are constantly dominating your life. You are now a son. And if a son, then an heir. I want you to look to the future. This is all that God has. He has so much more for you. He wants us to enjoy it. One of the things I think about this whole idea of an inheritance. We, we have some of that inheritance from God today as well as many, much of it in the future. And I think about our own children. I'm going to tell you what a great dad I am. So brace yourselves. Our girls who are in their 30s now. But as they grew up, age 1, age 3, age 5. Let me tell you how good I am. We never charged them rent. We didn't make them pay for their meals. I bought them cars. I paid for their car insurance. I'm just a wonderful dad. 
because they're enjoying the inheritance today. That what a joy it is to have the privilege to provide for them today, but also know that there is a future for them as well. God in heaven has an inheritance. We are heirs. We are enjoying his blessings today. Salvation, adoption, redemption, changes, power, Holy Spirit filling us, guiding us, teaching us, all free of charge, no rent, no mortgage payments. It's free inheritance we enjoy today that God has blessed us with because we're his child, children, we're his child. God wants us to enjoy that relationship but also realize there is a future. We have an, we have an inheritance still waiting for us. What I love about Paul is he's moving us into the present, out of the past, and into the future. Let me give you one more episode of my co-teacher this morning, my dad. When my dad was retiring from pastoring Bethany Bible Church after almost 30 years, they had kind of a farewell thing for him. And he got up there to share his last words to Bethany as their senior pastor. And I want you to hear some of those words. Not the details that are so important, some couple of names you won't know. But listen to his heart. Listen to what was important. Listen to where he wanted Bethany to go. What was the emphasis? It was future. It was generations to come. So take a look and listen. Well, what can you say after a time like this? If I'd known retirement was so much fun, I would have done it many times. I, I feel like they are back in Texas, you know, when they throw out a, a lot of accolades back there. They get you together and say all these nice things that you've been saying. And back in Texas, they say they really make over you. Now, you put that into Pennsylvania Dutch, and it doesn't come out that way. They say they make you over. <laughs> And I feel like I need to be made over for this period of so-called retirement we're going into. And I'm sure you only said these things tonight because they're true. They must, must have been. But uh, a lot of the things that have been said have triggered a recall to me of very, very precious moments in the ministry of Bethany Bible Church. And if you will tolerate just some examples that I trust will be repeated in the coming years, the coming generation of Bethany Bible Church. I remember when Catherine Sear was, was secretary here, and one Thursday afternoon she said, you know, here's a name. I think it might be well for you to go and talk to that family. And so it was a new family. The child was in kindergarten. I didn't know who they were. I went to that home that night, Thursday night, and both the husband got down on his knees and prayed to accept Christ, and the wife got down on her knees to rededicate her life to the Lord that evening, and that was Patty Cheatham, precious moment. And then Ruth Lidner was, and Bill were seeing me this morning, and uh, I remember how they beautifully decorated this house, this house of the Lord with flowers, and one day she called in, she said, you know, I think it would be well if you'd go to see a man. Uh, whose wife I work with in the Flower Garden Club. Dave Clem and I went that night, and that was the night we talked to Dean Glasgow in his home that he's referring to. And Larry, I remember that night, Tuesday night, 
when we read that Bible class. We never did recall and talk about it. But you know, that was, if you don't remember that, that was one of the nights that we had six weeks of Bible studies out in the Northwest Phoenix. And that was the beginning of the foundation formation of Trinity Bible Church. And so out of those events came some very long-lasting memories. And, and I'm sure Vern Van Hovel is, I can imagine how delightful he is to see his son up here uh, singing like this. If I was Vern, I'd be honestly proud of that. And uh, Ralph Springer having his son-in-law up here singing as well. Uh, I think of these as the next generation representing the future of, of a ministry here at Bethany Bible Church, the Timothys. And if I can share anything with you in my concluding statement here is that this congregation tonight, your presence tonight, is a real tribute, a real tribute to what God has been doing here through you and through the leadership of Bethany over these years. But I'm looking to the future. And as Paul said, as we saw in Timothy this morning, uh, as to the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, not only for me also, only, but also for all of those who love his appearing. And I can only lay before you a challenge, dear people, that when your new senior pastor comes on the scene, that you will, from the very beginning of his ministry here, be strongly supportive, as strongly supportive as you are here tonight, of my closing phase of the ministry. You have been so responsive. But what a thrill it would be for a new senior pastor to come in and see this kind of support rallying around him, not waiting for him to leave, but waiting for him to come and say, here we are, we're ready to serve. And I'm sure that the staff of the church uh, will be grateful for that kind of support of ministering on behalf of others reaching here in this locality and also around the world. So I'll be praying for you. And I trust that you'll also be praying for us as I carry on a little interim ministry elsewhere, trying to bridge the gap from one pastor to another. And so that will be done here. And be supportive of the church. Be here in your presence and also in your prayers. I'm sure that that would be a stepping stone to making Bethany of the future an even greater church than it's been in the past. I can't tell you how rich it is for me personally to listen to my dad. And to hear a heart that has a future orientation that is not about him, but it's about what God wants to do through the congregation. That is a modeling for me. Regardless of the individuals, some of those names you don't know, I know those people, they're dear people that he mentioned by name. But as he thought about generations to come, future work of God, looking to the crown of righteousness that is the inheritance ultimately of heaven. That is the mindset that we, all of us, men and women alike, we pass that on to those that follow us. That we're here for a time, but we want to bring up those that would follow the generations that are yet to come. That we're constantly, constantly causing the growth so there is a fullness to who we are in Jesus Christ, clothed with Christ, empowered by the Spirit to accomplish God's will. I invite you into that kind of fatherhood of our God in heaven who seeks that for each of us. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, maybe that's the beginning point for you. 
to say, yes, I want to be adopted by the Father in heaven. I want to bring joy to him. I want to see this change, some of the blessings of today as well as the inheritance of the future. I want that. And if you've never believed in Jesus, we invite you as we have this time of worship, come up here and we would love to pray with you and encourage you in that. Or perhaps it's a rededication of some type. You can take that little card that's there in the chair rack. If you're a guest, we'd appreciate if you'd fill that out. Indicate on that card, yes, I want to know more about what it means to be adopted into the family of God. I want that for my life. That's what I need. We'd love to invite you into that. You can put it in the offering buckets that are here in these various stations. In fact, we'd like to go into a time of worship and we have the communion. The bread and the cup, it symbolizes the body and the blood of Jesus. His death upon that cross is what Paul talks about to redeem us, to buy us out of sin so that he could adopt us into his family, so he could send his spirit into our hearts so we can say to the Father in heaven, Daddy, I'm thankful for your love for me. That's the kind of relationship the Father seeks. We express it through communion, symbolically, through our giving, through our prayers. We'd love to invite you up for that as well. Let me pray for us as we worship the Father together. Help us, Father, as we come before you now, that, God, we would honor you as a loving Father who has removed all unbearable expectations to empower us to grow to the fruitfulness of all that you seek for us. That as Paul addressed that first century church and said they, they can be clothed with Christ, I pray that we would put on the clothing of Christ and that we would enjoy the adoption as a family, as a child of yours, that, God, we would call upon you and we would reflect your sovereign control, your love, your guidance. God, in those moments where we don't know what you're doing, that, God, we would still see your hand upon us to help us, to move us forward, that you are a divinely empowered, wonderful Father that wants to providentially work in our lives too. Father, thank you that we can look to you and praise you, thank you and worship you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.